So October 1st, 1987, I'm an 18-year-old heathen in my bedroom with my girlfriend, and we get in a fight, and I say, go home. Get out. She cries. She runs home. I'm in my room, and I'm going nuts. I feel, I literally feel like I'm going insane. Something's wrong with me. I'm so weighed down with guilt, not about being basically a jerk to her, but just about everything in my life. So many things that I'd been doing for the last four years before this. All of a sudden, in the last months, I'm under this weight of guilt, and I don't understand why. No one's telling me I'm doing something wrong. In fact, the, the, the year before this event, I'd actually changed my life pretty much. Pretty, I'd done pretty well for myself. You know, I, I stopped beating people up. I stopped abusing, I stopped uh, smoking cannabis. I had just one girlfriend. I had better grades. I started playing sports again, which kept me out of trouble. I, I had a good job. I was actually doing pretty well, I thought. But there was this conviction that I didn't understand, and I thought I was going crazy. And so I cursed at God and said, what do you want from me in very colorful language? Some reason, even though I didn't grow up in a Christian home and nobody's talking to me about God, for some reason I'm connecting God with guilt. Probably not the clearest of things, but it was still there. And the thing that happens is I had what you might call an epiphany. This instantaneous understanding, just this, I knew that I, I was guilty. It wasn't just that I felt guilty, I was guilty before this God that I had just cursed. And I was in big trouble. And so I prayed a much humbler prayer, and I said, God, I need to know you, and I need to do whatever you say. And it was October 4th, just a couple days later, where I went to a church service and heard about Jesus and all the big questions I had about life. How come people, who, who determines who's in authority? Who determines what's good or right? Is there any way I can have hope for the future? All these big questions that I've been wrestling with and trying to numb through the different lifestyle choices I was making, all those questions were answered in Jesus. He is the authority. He is God's goodness incarnate. It's His work that I need for myself. He's the hope I have for a future. And my life was radically, radically changed. I mean, I had one of those conversions where, you know, I, 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 I go up front. I'm the first guy there. It's a massive church, probably 3,000 people. I'm the first guy up front. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm crying, which is no surprise to you guys, but I'm crying. <laughs> it's a new thing for me then. I, I, I'm crying, just so broken, and I know something's radically changed. And we, when we leave that night, we drive to this burger place called In-N-Out Burger. If you're a Christian in Southern California, you have to get In-N-Out Burger. It's like, it's a sacrament or something, I don't know. But. <laughs> so we go to In-N-Out Burger. And in In-N-Out Burger, they have uh, underneath the cups, it says John 3.16. On their, on their 
the little package that holds their fries. It says Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I never noticed this before. And so I've been a Christian all of like 45 minutes. And someone says, hey, check this out. Have you ever seen this before? I'm like, no. And so I go up to the window and I'm like, this is amazing. I said, hey, hey, dude, guess what? I just got saved today. He's like, I just make the fries, you know, like. (laughs) He's a little bit like, whoa. But there was this radical, radical transformation. Now, I tell the story because if that's where it ended, if, if that's what happened 30 years ago, I had this radical transformation and nothing has changed since, something would be radically wrong. Now, some of you could come up and tell your story. Your story would be, well, I think, in fact, I didn't ask for permission, but I don't think she'll mind, Kathleen's story. <laughs> Kathleen grew up in a Christian home. I think her dad became a believer and then sort of led the family to the Lord. I think she was like what, four or five or something, or six years old when he received the Lord, and four, four years old when she received the Lord, and got filled with the Spirit at nine or something like that, and just has this life of just walking with Jesus for a long time. But if her life, and she would tell you this, if her life was, oh, that's all there was. I just had these two experiences at four and nine or whatever, and then there's something would be wrong. Because the reality is that God doesn't just do something to change us. He doesn't just say, here's some radical events to change you. That God is in the business of making us new people. Jesus calls people to follow him so he can make them new people. Not just nice people, new people. It's not just about Jesus saying, okay, I want you to take on a new moral standard. Or I want you to change the, the, what you do with your time on a Sunday morning. It's that God wants to do something radical. He wants to make us like Jesus so that we can enjoy Jesus forever. He wants to transform us. This is what we mean when we talk about discipleship is transformational. It is something where God, it's a supernatural work where God changes us. Which is why, if we're going to follow Jesus, we should both expect and experience change. Now, I wish I could say to you, in 30 years, it's been like, I had a radical conversion experience, and it's been a straight line of growth ever since. (laughs) But it hasn't. It's been three steps forward, five steps sideways, eight steps backwards, kind of going diagonal for about 15 steps, getting back on track, going three steps forward. I mean, it's been all over the place. But what I I can say is that God is continually changing me. That as I follow Jesus, He's actually transforming me by His Holy Spirit. That's what we want to see today. When we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3, Jesus is interacting with this man, Nicodemus. Now, we need to understand something about Nicodemus because it really is a testimony to us. Nicodemus, we know first and foremost, just by his name, that he was an educated man. So he was a Pharisee. That means he would have been a religious ruler of the day. He's called a ruler. We'll talk about that in a second. But the fact that his name is, he's a Hebrew, but his name is Nicodemus, which is a Greek name, shows that he was educated not just in Hebrew scriptures, but probably in Greek schools. So that Nicodemus, his, main, his name means victory over the people, he, he was like bred to be a ruler. This was a, a very clever, educated man. 
it says that he was a ruler of the people. That literally means he he was a ruler. He was probably a member of what's called the Sanhedrin, which was these, these men that kind of ruled over Israel. They kind of liaised with the Roman government and made sure that Israel had what they needed politically and logistically. So he was a powerful man. He was an educated man. He was a powerful man. But also, from what he says to Jesus, and I don't think this is Nicodemus uh, trying to butter Jesus up, I think this is him being sincere. He goes to Jesus by night, and, and this actually could be wisdom on his part. We kind of, some people want to say, see, he was a coward. He wouldn't come to Jesus by day. But Jesus was getting popular, and he was becoming more controversial. And so he goes to him by night, and he goes to him by night, and he says, you know, we know that you have to be from God because you're doing things that only someone from God could do. Now, in that, there are some assumptions that he's probably making uh, about Jesus and probably making about his ability to discern things, but still, this shows that he's a devout man. Nicodemus is someone who's sincerely, uh, a sincere, devout follower of the God of Israel. So he's an educated man, he's a powerful man, he's a devout man. But the thing that we need to see about Nicodemus is he's just a man. <laughs> and it's interesting because when Jesus gives his response to him, in verse 3, and he says, you must be born again. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, I recognize that you are this kind of person, that you are educated, that you are powerful, and that you are sincere. But that's not enough. It's not enough. Something else has to happen. Now, we know this is the case because if you jump up to chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, it's going to be on the screen in in the New Living Translation, because I like the way it says it. But here's what John wrote. It says, But Jesus didn't trust them, because he knew all people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's hearts. The New King James says, He knew what was in man. And the word for man there is a word that means human beings. Now, there's different words in the Greek language for man. There's one that means male, and there's one that means human beings. Now, this is what's interesting. Chapter 3, verse 1, when it says there was a man, it's literally there was a human being of the Pharisees. So John, the writer of this gospel, wants us to see Nicodemus as being held up as the human being. You think your education was good? His was better. You think you might have some influence? He had more. Do you think you're really committed to your understanding of morality or religion? He was more so. And the point is, listen, the thing that we, that, that we need to understand is, is that this transformation we're talking about requires so much more than our own human ability. That what God wants to do in us is not about us, okay, just get more educated, try to gain more influence, try to be more devout and sincere. No, we need something else. Just like Nicodemus needed something else. And so Jesus tells him what the something else is in verse 3. He says, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, literally it means born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, it almost seems rude, doesn't it? You know, Lord, we, we, we know you're from God. Like you, you, you sense there's a question here. Can we, can we hear more about you? And Jesus goes, enough about me. What about you? <laughs> The, the, the reason you don't understand who I am is because what you need more than anything is to be born again. You need something supernatural to take place. Now, this is important because Jesus 
makes it clear here. He says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born from above. If you look at verse 4, he says, I'm sorry, if you look at verse 7, he says, uh, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. In other words, Jesus wants to make it clear, it's necessary, Nicodemus, if you're going to participate in God's kingdom, it's necessary that there's a supernatural work that takes place. Now, of course, Nicodemus doesn't understand this. He's, he kind of asks a, a silly question. Well, how can a man be born when he's old? You know, how's that going to work, you know? He's not a, he's not a, as obviously he's an, he's an intelligent man, but he's probably using a bit of sarcasm here, thinking that sounds a bit ridiculous to me. But Jesus wants to make it clear to him in verse 5, right? He says, listen, most certainly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice what he says, verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit, of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus is equating being born from above with being born of the Spirit. Now, if you guys are of a mature generation, you might remember when the phrase was out, people would say, I'm a born-again Christian. They wouldn't just say I'm a Christian, but I'm a born-again Christian. This was really popular. People would say this. The truth is, there's no such thing as a non-born-again Christian. (laughs) And anyone who's a Christian, if they're really a Christian, they had to have been born again. This is the point that Jesus is making. The point Jesus is making is, for us to be a part of the kingdom, we need the supernatural work of God. We can't do this on our own. In fact, listen to this. John chapter 1. John writes this. He says, For as many as received Jesus, to them God gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, in other words, not human connection, nor of the will of flesh, that is, you're not trying to make it happen, nor of the will of man, not just a choice that you make, but of God. God has to do something. God has to do something. Listen, if you don't get anything else today, get this. Please, get this. God needs to do something in your life. We'll talk about the choices that you need to make, but God needs to do something in your life. And unless you realize that you need God to do something in your life, you won't be able to move forward. Unless you understand that God needs to do in your life what only God can do in your life, you won't understand what it means to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, to have the help of eternal life. You need God to do something. Now, if you drop down to verse 8, Jesus gives a description to Nicodemus that's really interesting. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you, can, you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. In other words, he's kind of using wind as, an, as a, an illustration, as a metaphor for the work of the Spirit. He's saying that basically we don't ever see the wind, do we? We never see the wind. You go, yes, I do. I see the trees. Well, that's not the wind. That's the effect of the wind. So the point that Jesus is making here, in fact, he says so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying when it comes to the work of God's Spirit in our life, when He is working in our life, it's not something that it's seen, but it is, listen, it is something that's evidenced. So we don't ever see the wind, but we know if the wind's moving or working because the trees move. So we don't see the wind, but we see the evidence of the wind. Are you following me? Now this is important too because this kind of overlaps into 
what our convictions are as a church when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, wanting to talk about the work of the Spirit. I'm reading again from the New Living Translation because I like the way it paraphrases it. Paul writes this. He says, So I want you to know... Oh, where am I? Yep, no, sorry, I guess I'll go over that. He says, he starts this. He says, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, he says, I don't want you to misunderstand this. He writes, you know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know, he says, that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say later on in the same chapter, it is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts, or you might say supernatural abilities. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Now this is important, follow me in this, okay? What Paul's saying is when he, when he begins this section in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and by the way, we have a whole series on our website called The Work of the Spirit where we unpack 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 in detail. So if you want to know what we believe about tongues or prophecy or healing and how those things should work, read, listen to that series. You'll get a really clear, distinct understanding of, of how we operate in that stuff uh, as a church. But he starts off this section by saying, being really clear. He says, listen, I want you to be clear. This is the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. The evidence is, if the Spirit's working in your life, if you've been born of the Spirit, you're never going to curse Jesus. That doesn't mean you're not going to be frustrated with Jesus. It means that you're never going to say, ah, I don't need this Jesus stuff. And you're also going to be able to declare, Jesus is Lord. Now, he's not saying, listen, Paul's obviously not saying that no one can utter the words, Jesus is Lord, unless they're filled with the Spirit. Anyone can say those words. If you went on the street and said, excuse me, could you read this card? And on the card it said, Jesus is Lord. Any, anyone could read it, whether they were a Christian or not. They might think you're weird, but they could do it. It doesn't take a supernatural ability to say those words. That's not the point. The point is to understand, accept, and declare that you're under the Lordship of Christ, that you, He's your authority. If that's in your life, if you recognize that truth, that's evidence of God's Spirit working in your life. And as we submit ourselves to the work of God's Spirit, we are submitting ourselves under the Lordship of Christ. That's the evidence of God's Spirit. Now, the reason I, I think this is so important because when it, what we tend to do, especially those of us who would consider ourselves charismatic, we believe all the gifts of the Spirit are for today, that's our uh, our conviction as a church that sometimes what can happen in charismatic circles is the evidence we're looking for is a supernatural manifestation. Now we believe in supernatural, supernatural manifestations. Okay, We believe in that. We see that God does that. Okay, But Paul's saying that's not the evidence. The evidence is what you do with Jesus. The evidence is your submission to Jesus. That's the evidence. This is really important to understand because Nicodemus is coming to Jesus and saying, okay, we know you're from God, but the question that's kind of behind the, the, the words is, but we're not sure you're actually the Messiah. You could just be a guy who's used by God to do supernatural stuff. 
We're not sure if you're actually the Messiah, if you're actually God's chosen king who we have to submit ourselves to. And Jesus is basically saying, you know, no, listen, <laughs> you need to be born again. Because when you're born again, the, the first thing the Holy Spirit testifies to you is that you need to follow Jesus. Now, my personal conviction, without getting too overly theological, was that on that day, October 1st, when my eyes were opened, that I needed to know God, that I wasn't yet born again, but God's Spirit was doing something powerful. But then October 1st, when I heard the gospel, that it was Jesus I needed to put my faith into, it was Jesus I needed to follow, and I believe that, that's when I was born again. That's my personal conviction of how that happened. The reality is this, though. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is teach us, equip us, empower us to actually follow Jesus as Lord. That's what He wants to do. In fact, without Him, we cannot do it. It's a supernatural work of God. And it's in our submission to that. It's when we say, Lord, I just want to follow you. I just want to obey you. Let me give you an example of how this works, especially when it comes to the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, it's not going to be on the screen, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.1, he says, pursue love. It's a command. Pursue love and desire the work of the Spirit, but especially that you would prophesy. What's the command? Pursue love. Who commands you? God does through the Apostle Paul. We're following Jesus through the command of the Apostle Paul there. All right, Jesus, your Lord, you say to pursue love. I'm going to pursue love. Do you know what you can expect? You can expect God to change you over time, teach you to love like Jesus, and part of teaching you to love like Jesus is for the Holy Spirit to give you whatever you need to love people. Whatever you need to love people. It really is that simple. We, we sometimes think, okay, I know what I need to love this person. I need this supernatural manifestation, or I need that supernatural manifestation. How do you know? You know what you really need to love people? You need to obey Jesus. And you can only do it by the power of the Spirit. And when you obey Him, you follow Him, you know what ends up happening? He fills you with His Spirit, and He manifests what, he, what needs to, to be manifest. I was trying to love a guy in the street once, a guy who wasn't a believer. We were trying to uh, have conversations about Jesus with, with people on the street. And this guy was a professor at UEA, professor of philosophy, I think. And um, one of the guys who was out there with me was, was sharing with him and was kind of getting tied in circles a bit. And so he kind of waved me over. Come and help me, you know. So I went over there and I listened to this guy's arguments and stuff. And God gave me what I would call is, as I was listening to this guy, I'm thinking, Lord, I can't keep up with this guy. He's way too smart for me. So I don't, how am I supposed to love this guy? I was praying, Lord, show me how to love this guy. God gave me what we would call a word of knowledge, which is when you know something about someone that you could not possibly know naturally. And so I said to this guy, I asked him a couple, really, I won't say what they are because in case he ever shows up, I don't want to say anything too personal. <laughs> but I said some very personal things. Is this the truth about you? And he was kind of, and I said, this is what God would say to you right now. And this man in his late 50s, I would guess, educated, started weeping on the street. Now, he, he didn't come to Christ that day, but I got to put my hand on his shoulder and say, listen, I'm not trying to call you out. I'm, I'm just trying to say, God's really wanting your attention. 
And you can't hide behind your intellect forever. He loves you. He wants your attention. He's calling you to trust him. Afterwards, he thanked us for the conversation and he walked off. I don't know what God's done with that man. Now, you might go, that's amazing. I want that to happen to me. I want to have a word of knowledge. Hey, man, I've been a Christian for 30 years. It's happened four times in 30 years. Four times. God moves as He wills. He commands us to love. He commands us to go out. We need God's Spirit to be able to go out. We need, to, to, we need the Holy Spirit to change us, that we become obedient. We learn obedience, and as we learn obedience, God will do what He wants to do. Listen, God may never do something that, that supernatural in your life. It doesn't matter. What matters is, are you submitted to those spirits working in your life to, to teach you to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus, to become like Jesus? Are you following me? Now what happens is, Nicodemus hears this stuff, and he says in verse 9, he says, how can these things be? And Jesus says back to him, dude, I'm paraphrasing, you're the teacher of Israel. How do you not know these things? In other words, listen, Jesus expected that Nicodemus would have recognized what he's talking about. Why would Nicodemus, how could have Nicodemus understood this idea of being born of the Spirit? How could he have known this? This is why. He should have known because the new covenant, which is talked about in the old covenant, talks about these kinds of things. Okay, now you guys, uh, you, you may or may not know, depending on how long you've been at church, that right now we're in the New Testament. This is John's Gospel. This is the New Testament. So starting in Matthew through Revelation, that's what's called the New Testament. It's part of the new covenant or the new way that God is relating to people, the covenant God makes with people who trust in Him. Compared to the Old Testament, which is Genesis through Malachi, that's the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. That's what that, that means. You guys following me? Okay. In the Old Covenant is a promise, is promises, plural, about the new covenant. Listen to this. And Nicodemus should have known this. Listen to this. Where is it? There it is. Okay. This is Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Look, listen. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because notice, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the lord for i will forgive their wickedness and i will remember their sins no more the newness of this covenant that jeremiah writes about that god speaks through jeremiah that one of the characteristics is is god's desire for a personal relationship god doesn't just relate to the spirit doesn't just work on prophets priests and kings that's what you see in the old testament in the old testament the holy spirit comes upon prophets he comes upon priests, and he comes upon kings. The normal person just kind of observes, brings their sacrifices, and hopes to God it's enough. New Testament, something radically different happens. New covenant, something radically different happens. God does something radical. Ezekiel talks about this twice in, in, in uh, his, his writings, his preaching. Ezekiel chapter 11 and Ezekiel 36, listen to this. It says, 
I will give them an undivided heart. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. I will give them an undivided heart and put, notice, a new spirit in them. I will remove from them the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will give them a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Do you see what he's saying? That what characterizes the new covenant, the New Testament, is God doing a supernatural internal transformative work in a person's life. It's not just a moral conformity. It's not just simply believing the words that God speaks. As important as that is, that's next week's study. (laughs) It's about God doing something supernatural. Transformation, listen guys, is the very promise of the New Testament. When we encourage you, when if you visited here and you know off at the end of service, we encourage you to respond to God, to call out to God if you haven't asked Him to forgive you and to receive His forgiveness. We're not just saying, say a prayer, get a ticket to heaven. We're saying, we're inviting you to submit to God and say, God, I need you to change me. Start that process today. I need that supernatural work in my life. Now, Jesus goes on to say to, these, to, to, uh, to Nicodemus, he says, most assuredly, he's, notice he says in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 11, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you don't receive our witness. Why is he speaking in the plural? Different Bible commentators believe different things. I agree with the opinion that he's speaking in the sense of the witness of him and the Father and of the Spirit, the plurality of, of the Godhead. That Jesus here is basically saying, look, we've testified. I've said it. The Spirit's convicting you right now that this is true. And the, te- the, the Word testifies of this. The Father's testified of this at my baptism. And you haven't received our witness. And when he says in verse 12, hey, I've told you earthly things, how you understand heavenly things, I believe the earthly thing he's is referring to is the fact that we need to be born again. That's something that has to happen this side of heaven. We need to be born of the Spirit, this side of heaven. But what I really want you to pay attention is what he says in verse 13, where he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus says, listen, you need to recognize, I am the message. (laughs) Jesus is the message from heaven. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, which we'll see in a second, and he is the point of the New Testament. He is the message. If you are here today and you're already a believer and you're going, you know, I'm a believer, I want to experience more of God's power in my life, more. I want it to be changed more by God. Let me tell you what the Spirit's all about. The Spirit's all about you knowing and following Jesus more. Do you want to see the Spirit work in your life? Obey, follow Jesus more. Jesus wants to make the point clear to Nicodemus, and so he gives him an Old Testament example. He's quoting, or he's referring to, I should say, Numbers chapter 21. You can read that chapter later on. And he says this in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. Now the story in Numbers 21 is the Israelites, God's covenant people, are complaining against God because he hasn't got them into the promised land. 
Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that was their fault, not his. <laughs> they continued to wander in circles instead of entering in when they could have. And they're complaining, oh, it's been out here and we don't really eat very well, same food every day. And have to hit a rock to get water and they're just really complaining. And so what happens is God chastens them. He sends serpents, poisonous snakes, and they bite these and some of these Israelites begin to die, and they cry out to Moses, we've sinned against God by complaining. And God says, okay, or Moses says, okay, God, what do you want me to do? They're complaining, I don't know what to do. And God says, Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent. Bronze is the metal that speaks of judgment. A serpent speaks of who? Satan or evil, doesn't it? So I want you to make a bronze servant that speaks of judgment upon Satan and evil or sin. And I want you to hang out on a pole, and anyone who's bit, if they will just go and look at that pole, if, if they look at that pole, they'll be healed of their bite. They will, they'll be saved from death. That's the picture Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you need to understand, just as that, that Moses lifted up that serpent, so I have to be lifted up. Where was Jesus lifted up? The cross. He's saying this is what has to happen. See, the point is, he's the point of every Bible story. That's the point. Jesus wants them to know, listen, he wants Nicodemus to know. This is why he thinks Nicodemus should have recognized. You know the new covenant's coming. We're the Messiah. I am the Messiah. What do you think's going to happen? Radical transformation. That's what's going to happen. Now, we need to be clear about something. This radical transformation does not all happen overnight. We are all in process. We are being changed according to the, the words that, that Paul uses in, in, I think it's in Romans, he talks about us being changed from glory to glory. We, we, we learn the glory or the unique value of who Jesus is for us and we're being changed, as, as we recognize that, we're being changed into the very glory of His image. We're being made like Jesus, from glory to glory. It's a process. And as I alluded before, and you probably are experiencing, it's not always a straight shot. Now, I, I, I kind of break up this message uh, at verse 16 for two reasons. One, I think the thought changes a little bit, but also... Uh, there are some commentators that would think that from verse 16 onwards is John's writing, not Jesus' words. So my version has it in red still, but some versions don't. In one sense, it doesn't, make a, it doesn't make matter at all because this is still God's word to us. But he's, it says in verse 16, I think it was Jesus speaking, and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice he says, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Now what I want you guys to understand about this transformational work that God wants to do, that transformation requires a persevering faith. See, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but that faith is not a one-time exercise. It, it, we're not just like, okay, I believed in Jesus October 4th, 1987. That's when I had faith. I'll see you in heaven, God. 
No, I, can, I have to continue in faith. God calls me to continue in faith, to persevere in faith, to keep trusting Him, basically. And so really what we're having unpacked here for us is what it is we need to trust God for. And the first thing Jesus wants to make clear is we need to be trusting that Jesus is God's sufficient sacrifice. I want you to notice two words. In verse 16, he uses the word gave, describing God's action. And in verse 17, he uses the word send to describe God's action. And and this is very much on purpose. Very much on purpose. Because listen, when we talk about God's gave, that God's giving, that emphasizes the fact that Jesus was a sacrifice. He gave the same way that you would give a lamb to be sacrificed. It's emphasizing that's what he was doing. He was given him as a sacrifice. Jesus was born to die for us. The fact that it says he was sent so he wouldn't be condemned speaks of God's authority. And both of these things together are where we're going to have assurance that we can trust Jesus. We need to trust him. Okay, what you did was the sacrifice that God said was sufficient. If God says, here's the sacrifice I'm providing for myself for you to be forgiven, then it's enough. And also, if God sent Jesus with authority and Jesus says, in, in fact, uh, well, speaking of the fact that he sends a sacrifice, listen to this. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, Therefore, this is Paul encouraging elders to do their job, pastors to do their job. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock uh, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, notice, the church of God, which he, that's God, purchased with his own blood. We need to understand that though The whole trinity isn't necessarily in Jesus. Jesus being God the Son, fully man, fully God. It is God who is absorbing our sin on the cross. It's not cosmic child abuse. It's God the Son absorbing our sin. But also, he sent him with this authority. And this is important because Jesus makes a statement that we'll look, at to, we'll look at next week and in depth. Jesus says, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Well, that's a nice thought, but how do we know it's going to be true? We know because God sent Jesus. So how do we know that God gave Jesus as a sacrifice? And how do we know that God sent Jesus as the authority? How do we know? What happened after he died? He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was. See, persevering faith means we have to keep trusting in God's sufficient sacrifice. You know, I've been a Christian now for almost 31 years, and I've never, ever outgrown the need for God's grace. In fact, as I grow, the more I recognize how dependent I am upon God's grace. I so need his forgiveness. And if Jesus' cross was not sufficient to provide that forgiveness, I would have been lost a long time ago. But it is. It is. I I don't care what you've done or failed to do this week or even this morning, Christ's death is enough to wash that clean if you're willing to repent and turn in. And I don't care what anybody says to you, what your friends or family who might not be believers say to you about how ridiculous it is to trust in Jesus or even what that thought is that keeps spinning in your head, maybe this is all a farce. 
Jesus said, and he rose from the dead, he who he sets free is free indeed. He said that. Persevere in that faith. Believe Jesus is that sufficient sacrifice. Then quickly in verses 18 and 19, Jesus talks about condemnation. That is, in in this sense, condemnation means that you've been judged as, you've been judged and found guilty. That's what it means. You've been judged and found guilty. It's a very scary thing to have God say, you're judged and found guilty. That's the epiphany that came to me that night, October 4th, that I believe was the Holy Spirit opening my eyes that I'm judged and found guilty before God. Jesus says, listen, if you believe in him, you're not condemned. You're not found guilty. You're justified, which means you're rendered innocent. But the person who hasn't believed, if you have not yet believed, so if you're here and you're still kind of thinking about this Jesus stuff, what does it mean to be a Christian? You're still investigating these things. You need to know, according to Scripture, according to, I believe, Jesus himself, you're already condemned. You've already been found guilty. You're already in that place. Because the only thing that can remove your guilt is what Jesus has done. And if you refuse that, you're still stuck in that place of guilt. You're still guilty. You've still done things you shouldn't have done. And you still have neglected things you should have done. Apart from Jesus, you're still guilty. He's saying this. And he says, and this is how you know the condemnation, because what happened? The light, that's Jesus, came into the world. But what happened? Men, that is human beings, love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Let me ask you, if you are confident that you're, if you're not a, a Christian yet, and you're confident that you're still a good person, are you willing to tell us every thought you've had in the past week? Every secret thought. How would you feel if we could maybe just put those secret thoughts up on the screen? If you could see those things, you'd be humiliated, as would I. If, I could, if, if my life was splashed on that screen, if my secret thoughts were splashed on the screen, I'd be humiliated. Why? Because we're broken. Because this is something that we have to continue to understand. We're not condemned, but we're broken. We're still broken. We're waiting for our resurrection. And if we don't understand that, we won't persevere in faith. This is one of the reasons people get so condemned. They, they, they begin to think, they, they start feeling condemned because they think, okay, I want to trust Jesus. I believe what he's done is enough. I want to be changed. So they try to move forward in being changed and then they fail and they go, gosh, maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. But part of persevering faith is realizing I'm persevering in my brokenness because one day I will no longer be broken. Are you following me? It's not an excuse. Don't worry, the fourth aspect of discipleship is intentionality, obedience. We'll get to that. (laughs) But it is a reality, isn't it? That we're in this place. We need to recognize our, our own brokenness. That's part of persevering faith. And lastly, quickly, he says, for everyone who practices evil... Hates the light, doesn't come to the light, but the person, verse 21, who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been noticed done in God. Now, Jesus is making this really clear. He's saying, listen, we don't hide from God. 
Not because we go, look, God, I'm perfect. I get it all right, so I don't have to hide from you. No, walking in the light, walking with God, means we are constantly being exposed. But we also know that part of that exposure is we're beginning to see, okay, this is when I'm trying to do this, and this is when God the Spirit is doing this in me. And we come to Him because we want to see that. We want to clearly see, this is the, what, I've been done, what I've done in God. This is what I've done in my own strength. This is where I failed, and this is where God's helped me to succeed. Now, this is an important principle because persevering in faith, listen, it means, it means we're recognizing that that transformative work that God began when we came to faith in Christ, He is continuing by the same Holy Spirit. That you're not just dependent upon God's Spirit to come to know that you need Jesus or come to put your faith in Jesus. You're dependent upon Spirit, on God's Spirit every single step of the way. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians. Paul writes this, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Christ, Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if it had been a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. He says, listen, you received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to be made perfect by your own human efforts? God is in the business of transforming lives. God's changing us because of Jesus by the power of His Spirit as we persevere in faith. Listen, maybe you're in a place today where you feel like you're just stalled. You're just not making the progress you thought you'd make. You're not growing the way you thought you did. Could it be that you're trying to finish in your own strength what God began in the Spirit? Could it be that you need to learn what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? What does it mean to be pursuing the filling of the Spirit? Could it be that that you need to come back to Jesus and say, Lord, help me again? You know, it's no accident, as we saw in Ephesians, that the command to be being filled in the Spirit, that what follows that command right after that is how to be in a good marriage, how to be good parents, how to be good employees. Because you know what? You need the work of the Holy Spirit to represent Jesus in all those areas. It's not just about the supernatural stuff. It's about the daily stuff of walking with Jesus, about being transformed into his image. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what we want to help each other do. 